Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? It's a perfect day in paradise, my friend. A perfect day in paradise. Wow. Well, it can only go downhill from here. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad that you guys joined us this week. I thought last week's episode, Great American Bash 1999, was one of our better episodes. It's probably not the most noteworthy show we've done just because you know, by 99 WCW was kind of, eh, but, uh, lots of fun nuggets in there, especially finding out that, uh, someone pulled a gun on Eric Bischoff. So if you missed, no, 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 no. Don't say that. No, no, no. Someone, they, some... act, they actually, they didn't actually pull a gun. They implied that there was one beneath their coat during the course of a confrontation, which suggested to me, they may have had a gun. I didn't want to test the theory. So. Nobody actually pulled it on me. Okay, so don't listen to last week. If you missed it, uh, we just gave it all away. No big deal. Just trying to build some intrigue. My bad. Oh, okay. Let's start this over again. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen. It's sort of like the uh, the White Hummer, right? So we've been talking about the White Hummer since 1999, and we finally got some theories on last week's episode and some stuff about the No Limit Soldiers and everything in between. Check it out if you haven't already. Great American Bash 1999. I would call it a bit of a sleeper episode. I got really good feedback so far on that one, too. How about you, Eric? I mean, I did, too. And, of course, I encourage everybody, you know, when you and I got into our debate about, you know, Meltzer's reporting, I encouraged everybody to go watch the, the pay-per-view for themselves over at WWE Network. And if they agreed with me, to use the specific hashtags in support of that. And I don't know if you've noticed them, but I've, uh, I've gotten a pretty good handful of those. So I, that made me feel good. Oh my gosh. I, I do not encourage this behavior. I, I got to tell you though, I got taken the task by some of our listeners who felt like I'll let you off the hook when you talked about on what uh, Chris Benoit went on to be a big star and Dean Malenko went on to be a big star and you know, you're sort of taking credit for the fact that those underneath guys, you know, when, when, when you, uh, allegedly said, Hey, we're going to build the company around 10 guys that it, it had to be those guys. It couldn't be the other guys. And by the way, you said, well, I'd already made those guys stars We sort of implied it. That wasn't exactly what you said, but most people who take issue with just about everything you say here on the show, I, I think we've got a lot of hate listeners. Did you know that? Have, have you put that together yet? Well, I mean, it comes with the territory, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're talking about events that took place over 20 years ago, 25 years ago in some, in some cases, and everybody's got opinions about it. And most of those opinions, many of those opinions were formed by, you know, the, the prevailing narrative of the time, which was pretty negative. So it doesn't surprise me. I'm used to it. You know, been around the business for over 30 years. It's not my, my, not my first day on the job. I'm not surprised by it. So one of the you know criticisms of last week's show is that I let you off the hook and I should have sort of taken you to task at the fact that Chris Benoit didn't become a big star on your watch. He became a big star with the WWE and your response to that would be. Um, I think I laid the groundwork for him to become a big star. I think I gave him more television exposure to a larger audience than he had ever had in his entire career. Same true for Rey Mysterio. Same true for Eddie Guerrero. Uh, so, no, I'll, you know, define a star. What is a star? Is a star somebody that is recognized around the world to the audience? And if that's the case, then, yeah, 
Um, I think Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, you know, Jericho, uh, all of the above uh, were being made stars in WCW um, in, in a significant way. Yes, did they go on to become beer stars and to headline WWE down the road? Of course they did. Would they have ever gotten that opportunity without the positioning that I gave them and the exposure that I gave them? And and by putting the limelight on it and shining the, the, that light on them so that their unique skills and abilities were on on display for the world to see? I don't think so. And, and if, if, if the haters think that that's not true, then now we know why they're haters. They're just not that smart. Well, everybody listening to this show is smart. You guys know where we get deep into the weeds and we're going to get deep into the weeds today with clash of the champions 27. Now this one went down on June 23rd, 1994. So 25 years ago today in Charleston, South Carolina at the McAllister Fieldhouse, it draws 6,700 fans, 4,044 of those paid a gate of $42,000 and it does a rating of three which is at the time, the fourth lowest rated clash of the champions ever, uh, but it is still quite the exciting time in WCW and we're going to explain why, but man, what a contrast. We're talking about how business was down in 99, but we've got gates that are, you know, nearly 300 grand here. They're 42,000, man. What a difference five years makes, huh? It really does. And before we, you know, just jump too quick into the show and in the background, what's really ironic about this. It, now, as I say, almost every week, this is a show that I haven't watched since the night I produced it. Right. But in doing my research and my prep for the show, because I know you do yours. And if I don't do mine, I end up sounding really stupid. Um, it just dawned on me, you know. Uh, just last week, it was everybody made such a big deal out of us. Twenty-five years ago, the White Bronco, OJ Chase, and you know, news media. You know, we're talking about that for two or three days uh, on the twenty-fifth anniversary, and then right after that, we hear that OJ Simpson is now coming out with his own Twitter, and he's got like three quarters of a million uh, followers in in a matter of two days, and it's just so ironic because later on in the show anything to talk about so we'll talk about it here i guess we'll see a, a little clip of hulk hogan jimmy hart and shaquille o'neal promoting bash at the beach which follows this clash of champions that that promo was produced in shaquille o'neal's home in orlando when he played for the orlando magic and when we were wrapping up that promo is when that high speed chase or that slow speed chase was actually taking place so myself, Hulk Hogan, Jimmy Hart, and Shaquille O'Neal were all sitting in front of Shaq's television watching this whole OJ thing come down. And now here we are, 25 years later, and it's still in the news. It, it's just amazing to me how – I guess it's ironic, you know, how how major things, you know, that happen in the world seem to sometimes come full circle – you know, it's just a personal irony for me because I, I was sitting there in Shaq's house watching that, and now it's all over the news. So, little tidbit. Well, the other little tidbit that you mentioned there is you're filming a vignette with Hulk Hogan, and this is why it's such an exciting time in WCW. It's a new path for the company. For years, you guys have been playing catch-up ball to the World Wrestling Federation. 
but now you have not only their biggest star, but the biggest star in the history of the industry. Hulk Hogan is now in fact, under the employ of WCW and we're going to see him on this show. And as you mentioned, he's going to make his in-ring debut the following month at bash at the beach, which we've covered in the archives. You can check it out now at 83 weeks.com there. Of course, he's going to challenge Ric Flair for the world title. And, um, this is sort of the last show of that era before we really get into the Hogan era. And it can be argued that even though this show wasn't a pay-per-view, it really starts WCW's push towards becoming a national promotion. And I think that you would say that that's by design because historically your perception and maybe the national mainstream advertising perception was that WCW was more of a Southern wrestling company. But now that you have the big player, and as you've said, when you're a salesman and you go to your pitch book, you pitch the thing that's easiest. Hulk Hogan was a lot easier to sell than even say a sting. When you watch this show back for the first time in gosh, 25 years, was that sort of what you're thinking about the whole time that this was the very beginning of the Hulk Hogan era? Well, clearly it was. I mean, this whole Clash of the Champions was really formatted to showcase and set up Hogan's first match with Flair at the Bash of the Beach, which was going to follow just about a month later. So there's no question about it. That was what was on our mind. You know, the the big ticker tape parade that we did at at Disney MGM Studios, you know, was was to set him up. The, The match between Sting and Flair was designed to set up a perfect match between Ric Flair and, and Hulk Hogan. So, I mean, yeah, to answer your question, yes, that's exactly what was on our mind. You know, I know we're going to talk about it here in a few minutes, but I do want to ask now, you know, historically the number one top heel in the company has been Ric Flair. And, you know, that's moved a little bit here, there, you know, with, uh, the success that big man Vader enjoyed and, was a little bit of a role reversal when he faced Flair at the end of 93. Flair was the baby face in his hometown. But historically, Flair's your top bad guy, and your top baby face has been Sting. He's sort of, you know, the franchise, the face of the company. And now Hulk Hogan's coming in, and no matter how you slice it, no matter what we try to sell or spin, it becomes very apparent that Sting is losing his top baby face spot. And we know in the main event, of course, that Sting is going to lose to Ric Flair. And we know that a month later, Hulk Hogan is going to beat Ric Flair. Did you have a conversation with Sting or did it ever even come up? I mean, we we know that Sting wasn't necessarily a lifelong wrestling fan. And he definitely approached wrestling more as a business and less as a fan. He wasn't a quote unquote mark for himself. And you hear a lot of the boys say, oh, this guy's a mark for himself or whatever. Nobody ever said that about Sting. But do you feel like you still need to have a conversation with him? Like, Hey man, even though Hulk Hogan's here, still going to be a big part of our plans moving forward. I don't, cause everybody in wrestling and, and we've talked about this wrestling sort of breeds paranoia. Did you worry about that? What's thing that maybe he may feel like he's losing his spot or getting lost in the shuffle. Absolutely not. And Sting's position was 180 degrees from that. I don't think other than myself and flair, uh, I don't think there was anybody in WCW that was more excited about Hogan coming in than Sting. Sting, Steve Borden, aka Sting, is a really smart guy, and he's not. He was never selfish. Steve Borden, Sting, he was never 
ever selfish in that regard. And he had a lot of confidence in himself. He looked at Hogan coming in the same way I did, quite frankly. He knew that, or he believed, I should say, that with Hogan coming in, it would raise the tide and everybody's boat would float a little higher. That was his position. And he was really, um, I mean, if I would have asked him to come along, if I felt I would have needed him to come along with Ric Flair and help convince Hulk Hogan you know, to join the company, he would have gladly done it. I mean, he, w- he really, he was just as excited as I was at the opportunity to kind of raise the visibility of WCW. Because keep in mind, he may have been the top babyface, but he was a big fish in a little pot. WCW was a distant number two. It wasn't number two. It was number two with a with an asterisk. It We were so far behind WWF at that time. And it was frustrating, especially for the top guys, because they weren't selling out houses. They weren't, you know, the pay-per-views weren't generating revenue. There was no merchandise. These guys were working their asses off. And in many cases, like Sting and, and other talent, and we'll talk about some of them throughout the show, you know, we had Steve Austin. You know, we had some great talent there, obviously Ric Flair. The guys were drawing. It wasn't working. WCW was so far down the total. We were so far behind WWF, it really wasn't even a race. I mean, it would be like calling, you know, Impact Wrestling the number three wrestling company. Yeah, I guess technically in some ways, I guess. If, you know, liars use numbers and numbers lie, you could probably make a case for that. But it would be laughable. No one would take you serious by by saying that, and that's kind of where WCW was, you know. And 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 not only was it, I think, personally for guys like Sting and, and you know professionals. Some now some guys were just there for a paycheck. There's no question about that. They didn't really care as long as they got their you know their contract and their you know check came in the mail every week. They were happy. But when you look at guys like Again, Sting and, and Steve Austin and, and Ric Flair and, and, and Vader and, you know, Mick Foley and a lot of other guys uh, that really wanted to be successful. They knew that an opportunity didn't really exist beyond the guaranteed contracts that they were able to negotiate. And, and by having Hogan come in, there was at least hope that we may be able to turn things around and finally get legitimately competitive. And, and I think Steve Borden was um, probably at the forefront of the cheerleading squad for Hogan coming in inside the locker room. Well, on the June 4th edition of WCW Saturday night, a crawl comes across the bottom of the screen reading WCW news bulletin. Hulk Hogan has signed with world championship wrestling. The fi- the former five-time WWF champion agrees to return to the ring this time with WCW due to overwhelming response received on the WCW wrestling hotline, which is just tremendous, you know, that, that you announce it this way. And then you credit the fans with calling into the hotline. It's almost like saying, Hey, we hear you. You wanted Hulkster and we got him for you. And you're acknowledging that he's a former five-time WWF champion. Was there any hesitation to acknowledge the top spot? I know sometimes, you know, those opinions differ. Number one, never acknowledges number two, but clearly you are number two. So that makes it okay. Is that, is that the rationale? You know, I, I didn't look at it that way. I mean, I, I, I was pretty progressive in my thinking and my approach to the business back at this time in 1994. 
So whatever the old school or traditional logic or philosophies were at the time, didn't, I just didn't apply to me. You know, I knew that, look, the, the wrestling audience, the audience that we were trying to appeal to, they knew who Hulk Hogan was. They knew where he'd been, you know, to, to try to pretend that it never happened would have been a wasted opportunity. Why not embrace the fact that, you know, we've got Babe Ruth. He used to play for the Yankees, but now he's playing for us. I, I, I couldn't have imagined doing it any differently. I mean, I don't disagree. It clearly worked. Uh, Wade Keller would report Hogan agreed in principle in April to join WCW pending a 21 day grace period during which the WWF could match WCW's offer. Vince McMahon apparently sent a release to WCW before the 21 day period was up stating the WWF had no interest in matching the offer. Hogan's new contract is good through December 31st, 1994, at which time WCW sources say an extension may be negotiated depending on Hogan's outside commitments and his impact on WCW. The storyline involving Hogan involves a six month run that WCW believes will leave them in a strong position, including a ceremonial handing of the torch from Hogan to sting before Hogan leaves WCW and perhaps wrestling for good. The WCW deal involves Hogan appearing on three clashes and four pay-per-views at a reported $300,000 for each of the seven shows. Hogan will also receive 25% of any pay-per-view revenue increase based on the current average revenues. And he will also wrestle on one tour of Europe and perhaps half a dozen us house shows and television tapings. The details of merchandising, which sources say were the sticking points in negotiations originally gave Hogan 65% of merchandising income. That percentage may have changed since WCW after arenas, 30% cut, assuming it sold at arenas, not through mail order. And the cost of merchandising and royalties would have lost money if that percentage were agreed to the bottom line minimum Hogan will earn is approximately 2.1 million in guarantees. And if the average buy rates double to a one Hogan's cut would be 300 grand per show or 1.2 million for all four shows. Merchandising is the X factor in the deal, which could significantly increase Hogan's eventual take from his six months with WCW. Chat me up how far off base or how on the money is Wade Keller with this report. Um, here again, you know, this is where there's a little bit of truth to this and a whole lot of nonsense. Now I'll I'll tell you what Hogan's deal was to the best that I can remember. I mean, I, I, I don't have it sitting in front of me. First of all, we didn't, we didn't start off with a six month deal. And I think that's what you said when you let off. We didn't enter into a six-month agreement. We entered into a two-year agreement. And the two-year agreement called for four pay-per-views a year at $500,000 a pay-per-view. So however he arrived at $2.1 million, you know, the the math gymnastics that he created to arrive at that number, none of that was accurate. But the, the, the end result, the, the $2 million was, it was $2 million a year. Now included, that was $500,000 per pay-per-view. That, that was the, the, the formula. But in addition to that formula, there were four televisions for each one of those pay-per-views included. Because you can't just throw somebody on a pay-per-view without having a story leading into it. So the appearances on 
you know, WCW televisions were a part of his pay-per-view obligation, if that makes sense. He wasn't paid for those television appearances. He was paid for the pay-per-view. But if you wanted and to, I am, if you wanted to am it out, I don't mean to cut you off. It's five, it's four shows on TV and then a pay-per-view for 500. It's essentially five appearances or a hundred K a shot. Now that's not the way you classified it, but it's certainly the result. If it's 500 for five dates. Right. But again, you were talking about you know, reported, you know, three, 300,000 for each of seven oh, shows. No, I'm not that wasn't true. I'm not defending what Wade said. I'm just saying it is fun to look back and say, Hey, what was Hogan's value? And for all intents and purposes, what you're paying Hulk Hogan for on some level is to leave the house. Every time he leaves the house for WCW, it's a hundred K roughly. He could have looked at it that way. That's just not how the contract was structured, but, sure. but the end result would have been, you're right. The end result would have been the same thing. His accountant would have looked at it that way. Right. I, I guess now Hogan, you know, they talked about Hogan will also receive 25% of any pay-per-view revenue increase based on the current average revenues. That part is true. I, I, I would give that a, you know, a, a on a one to 10 truth scale, I'd give that a 10. But what listeners need to understand is he would get 25% of the incremental increase. So for example, and I, again, I don't remember what the numbers were at the time. This is literally just an example. If the average WCW pay-per-view generated a million dollars to the bottom line for WCW, and then Hogan was on a pay-per-view and that doubled Hogan would get 25% of that incremental million dollars. Yeah. And that was, that was a no lose situation for us because, you know, we, we had a history of what our pay-per-views did. Anything that we would do over and above that, we were anxious to share. Actually, we were hoping we'd have to write an additional seven figure sure. checks because he was only getting 25% of the incremental increase and it would have been a win, win situation. So that, that part of it was true. I mean, and I and think, that, you, know, you know, that's been criticized over the years that you guys were giving him a part of the pay-per-view, but realistically you're giving him a part of, of what he drew. I mean, I don't know how that deal could have been structured any better with regard to the pay-per-view bonus than to say we've established a baseline. So you're not getting, you're not participating from a profit share standpoint from dollar one only on the increase. So if, if Hogan's name doubles our business, damn right he should participate that's fair for everybody that's a great deal for everybody and again you know and you know we laugh about it as part of what makes this show kind of fun for people to listen to is you know when you and i argue about you know dave Meltzer's reporting or wade keller's reporting and i get all pissed off about it but seriously when you know we talk about for example you know there's just a bunch of people that you know they're just haters out there and those haters grew up reading the nonsense and the 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 narrative and the agenda that guys like Dave had and, and Wade Keller had at the time. And those guys were the ones who were, you know, creating that narrative that, you know, WCW's crazy. Bishop's a mark. They're giving Hogan all this money. He's making 20, he's making 25% of all the revenues plus five. You know, they made that deal sound really bad. It was not a bad deal. Even by today's standards, it was a freaking great deal. So, you know, again, that's that's where the anti-Hogan, anti-WCW, anti-Bischoff, I think, narrative, you know, really started is misrepresenting because because of a lack of understanding or or experience uh, misrepresenting some of these deals. 
this this Hoga deal in retrospect was probably one of the better deals that WCW ever did in retrospect. I do have a but question about something that was in here where it says after the arena's 30% cut, assuming it sold at arenas, that was news to me. I didn't realize that you guys had to cut in the arena on your merch sales. Uh, is that different arena to arena or was that sort of standard practice back then? Back then it was pretty much standard practice. Now there were some smaller arenas. You could probably, you know, everything's negotiable. You know, if, if you're in a, you know, a small, small arena somewhere in North Georgia that only holds 3,500 people and doesn't get a lot of business. Yeah. That percentage is minimal if at all, but in the majority of your bigger arenas that do a lot of business, whether it's rock and roll or anything else, you bet that's part of the deal. Absolutely. Part of the deal probably still is. Would it be structured in a way where, you know, if they're going to participate on the merch sales, then your rent for the arena is reduced. Or is that not even a factor? It's just a given. It it varied from arena to arena. For example, we never got into Madison Square Garden, but had we, there would have been no discussion or negotiation. Right. That's a ta- that's a take it or leave it. Your bigger venues in your larger markets, there is no discussion. There is no negotiation. It's take it or leave it. You know, smaller venues and you know, more isolated parts of the country, there was more room to negotiate. I don't know why that's fascinating to me, but it is. Let's keep it moving here. I do want to talk about, you know, the main event um, of this show. It's going to be a huge unification match between the world champion, Ric Flair, and the international champion, Sting. Um, I mean, it feels like a no-brainer when you sign Hogan that, you know, him and Flair have been on a collision course. A lot of fans expected it to happen back at WrestleMania 8. So it has to happen now. Was there ever even a consideration to a sting Hogan or was the plan as Wade Kelly laid it out always supposed to be Hogan comes in and if he's going to leave, he'll do the honors for sting on the way out. I mean, that whole do the honors for sting on the way out was something that either Wade or somebody else fabricated. That was never discussion. It was never a thought. I don't know where this stuff, well, I do know where it comes from and how it happens, but it, it, it had nothing to do with any, in, with any of our internal conversations. The, the issue with, or the issue, the match between Hogan and Flair was simply because, and I've talked to you about this before, Hogan, the only person that Hogan was really comfortable with and felt that he could have the best possible first impression in WCW with was Ric Flair. That wasn't a slight to Sting. I almost call it Sting, um, Sting or Steve Borden. It's not that you know Owen didn't respect him or like him or want to work with him. That just was didn't, just didn't the know opposite. Him. Sorry, he just didn't know him, right? I mean, he had a history. Well, of working no, with he Flair. didn't know him. He knew who he was certainly, right. but he didn't know him, right? And he he just wasn't sure. He could have the best, especially your first match back. Hogan knew he felt the pressure. You know, he had a lot of heat on him. You know, the, the steroid trial had just come to an end. You know, there was a dark cloud over him at that point. He, he was well aware of it. He was well aware of the fact that when he came into WCW, you know, the traditional WCW audience, you know, our, our captive audience in the Southeast primarily, where Ric Flair was, you know, the man, um, he knew he was going to be swimming upstream and he just 
I think very accurately um, deduced that if he was going to have a great first showing, it had to be with with Ric Flair because he knew him and he trusted him. And I don't mean trust in the sense of, you know, would would Sting or anybody else try to take advantage of him and make him look bad. None of that paranoia type thing, just chemistry. You know, it's I had a match with Ric Flair that was pretty good and I can't wrestle a lick. You know, Hulk knew that if he could get in there with Ric Flair, he was going to look as good as he could possibly look. And that was his goal. And it's worth mentioning Sting's tan wasn't for shit here in 94, right? You know, I did notice that looking back at the show. (laughs) Oh, that's a deep cut for people who've been with us a while. Uh, June 11th on Saturday night, we see the ticker tape parade officially announcing the signing of Hulk Hogan. Um, Meltzer would recap it saying that Jimmy Hart was running around in front of him like a maniac with about 200 fans dressed up in Hogan merchandise passed out by the WCW staff. He would write total manipulation, but that is what this business is all about. Afterwards, Hogan gave a speech talking about coming to WCW, basically talking about the unification of the world and international titles at the June 23rd clash and trying to use wrestling history that didn't apply. Uh, He called the WCW belt that one that was held by gorgeous George, Luthez and Harley race. Uh, first off, George was never even considered during his heyday for the world title and, um, blah, blah, blah. Of course, Dave corrects all that. Who cares? Uh, but the, the gist is. You guys have have thrown a parade and he's sort of critical of it saying he looks in great shape for a man who is almost down 60 to 70 pounds from his peak WWF years. And almost assuredly no more, no longer on steroids. Uh, and he's 41 years old and he's talking about 41 years old as if, you know, he's aging. Of course, we've talked about how silly that is. We know the great matches that flair had at 41 or AJ styles has at 41. And he would continue in the interview in front of fans, plants, and extras. He still projected the charisma that made him one of the great box office draws in history. The entire spectacular production was nearly ruined by the quote unquote reporters. Those asking questions were actually actors hired through MGM as the few reporters who were there were asked to just keep quiet in an unintentionally hilarious spot. Former WCW jobber, Randy Hogan, who was used in the past to mock Hogan actually was on camera two or three times, uh, taking sound for a local radio station, unbeknownst to many in the company. And the reporters were scripted to be lame and ask redundant questions, which showed that the actual content of the skit wasn't planned out well. So he's critical of the presentation of Hogan at the ticker tape parade, uh, specifically with the extras and the plants and things like that. Was that all put together by MGM? Would that have been something Crockett would have lined up? Uh, how was the casting done for this ticker tape parade scene? Well, we were on a soundstage where they produced movies and television shows. We weren't out in the public. That wasn't a real New York City street that we were on. <laughs> so it, so it, it, it kind of, you know, by virtue of where we were and what we were doing and the fact that we were actually producing a scripted television show, I know that it had to be a shock to Dave. And I know that's like a square peg in a round hole in his head, but that's what we were doing. So yeah, we, we use actors. We, and a lot of the crowd were, you know, they were a legitimate crowd. You know, there's a lot of people at Disney MGM Studios every single day. And 
we promoted and and kind of uh, corralled as many of those legitimate, I want to say fans, but part guests who knew who Hulk Hogan was and were excited to see that he was going to be, you know, making an appearance, you know, in the backstage or back lot area. So, that, yeah, we, we set it up. It was a complete setup. I hate to break it to Dave, but, yep, we used actual actors instead of real reporters, you know, people that would have loved to come in and, you know, be the Jim Acosta of the wrestling world, as I'm sure many of them would have wanted to do. But rather than do that, because it was scripted, yeah, we use we use actors. And to answer your question more specifically, that was a combination of David Crockett and part, you know, management who do that kind of thing for a living. The, uh, the show here with the ticker tape parade, the, the crowning of Hulk Hogan as the, the new crown jewel, the new face of WCW, uh, does a 2.4 rating, which is the exact same rating that, uh, flair and steamboat got in a world title match about a month prior to this. Also on Saturday night, the show a week later on June 18th, which I guess is the go home edition for this class show we're going to cover does a 1.8 rating. So. You know, you, you had a week to sort of prep the fans at home. Hey, Hogan's coming next week. And then there's the big parade and it does an okay rating, but it doesn't, doesn't set a record. Exactly. Are you at all nervous? Is anyone at Turner nervous that, Hey, we didn't see something real impressive right out of the gate. Or did you kind of know we got to get him in the ring and get him in a storyline before we judge where we are? No, there was nobody in Turner that batted an eye at those numbers. You know, the only people that think or suggest that perhaps, you know, just by virtue of showing up and, and being announced and a little bit of, you know, we didn't get a ton of mainstream media here. WCW didn't spend a lot of money promoting the fact that Hogan was coming on board. Uh, we weren't taking out, you know, half page ads in the USA today. We weren't doing a lot of the things that we eventually did do. To, to try to get as much promotion and marketing and exposure as we can. At this point, we were just putting it on our own show. Keep in mind it's summertime. And this is an, even, even today, let me back up a little bit and finish my original thought. So no, we weren't worried about it all. We knew that it would be six months to a year before we would start to really see the benefits. I think we were hoping, I'm sure we were hoping um, in the short term that the pay-per-view numbers would start seeing incremental growth almost immediately that we did hope for and and expect but as far as television ratings the only people that think you know there's this immediate one-to-one causational effect if you do this on saturday you know your numbers are going to go up on excuse me if you do this on monday your numbers are going to go up tuesday morning that's so naive and ignorant and and the only people that have those thoughts are the people that write about the business that they don't know anything about it doesn't work that way you know, especially in the summertime, because nobody's watching television in the summertime, especially at 6.05 on a Saturday night. Nobody's watching television. In, in television ratings, it's called the hut level. Everybody's familiar what ratings are. They don't really understand what they mean. And quite frankly, it's too hard to explain sometimes. It's, it's voodoo math in a way. But another aspect of television ratings is called the hut level. And HUT is an acronym for Households Using Television. 
and in the summertime, starting in the spring, and it really starts in in around the time of the NBA playoffs. People start really kind of getting uh, ready for spring and summer. And, and again, with the playoffs, there's a lot of attention on them. But once the NBA playoffs happen, it's kind of a double whammy because there's a lot of focus on the playoffs. NBA is a very popular sport. And at the same time, it's staying lighter longer in most parts of the country. In fact, all of the country, with the exception of maybe Alaska at this point. Uh, And it's getting warmer and people have been cooped up all winter in, you know, the major markets, you know, in the Northeast, um, especially Chicago, Minneapolis. um, They're just not staying in and watching television. So it's even harder in the heat of the summer to do anything to create that one-to-one causational effect that people think is easy to achieve. It's a long-winded, weedy way of saying, no, nobody was worried about it. I want to save this summer argument for another time because I've always wanted to poke holes in that, but we'll shelve it and come back to it another time. Uh, Meltzer is going to say because of Hogan's name, WCW received a significant amount of mainstream publicity this past week with two different stories running across the wires. And of course, several spots on CNN on Monday, yet another press conference was taped for airing on WCW on June 25th. This one with Ted Turner himself showing up and signing Hogan and Flair to a contract for the Orlando match, which will be the first time Turner himself has involved himself in a wrestling angle, which would give the match an awful lot of mainstream publicity on Monday night, Hogan appeared on a live late night sports call-in show on CNN, the first ever wrestler in that spot. And he looked tired on the show, but came off pretty well. The most ironic thing about the show is that even though Hogan and the WWF have part of company, when Hogan talks, he still uses Vince McMahon's words and phrases directly. Things like I'm 40 going on 18 and I'm turning negatives into positives. He said, WCW places more emphasis on athletics than the WWF. And when the host said that pro wrestling was entertainment, choreography, a show, Hogan said that wrestlers don't go out to hurt each other, but they are great athletes and do get hurt. Uh, the host brought up steroids and Hogan pretty much said it was the only dark cloud over his career, but it was in the past due to Hogan. WCW now has the advantage over the WWF for the first time when it comes to the ability to garner mainstream publicity leading to its major shows. Boy, talk about a sentence, but that really sums it up. I mean, now for the first time ever in WCW's history, you've got a real mainstream star. And exactly. That's why we hired him. I mean, that's, that was, that was the reason for it. We didn't hire him because he was a better technical wrestler than Ric Flair. Um, we hired him because he could get mainstream publicity like nobody else. And that $2 million that everybody thought was so astronomical and ill-advised and such a huge mistake wasn't really an investment in Hulk Hogan. It was an investment in our ability to get on mainstream media's radar. Well, that's the uh, best possible way to sum it up. Um, Let's keep it moving here. Bash at the Beach, this is according to The Observer, almost needs to be the biggest WCW pay-per-view show in years and the company and Hogan are going all out and calling in their former markers for hyping of the show. This past week, Hogan filmed interviews with George Foreman and Shaquille O'Neal, which you've touched on, both of whom are scheduled to appear at Bash at the Beach for airing on TBS in the weeks leading up to the show. 
While not confirmed, there have been serious negotiations to bring in several other major league celebrities to Orlando as well, with Mr. T and Wesley Snipes being two of the most likely. Boy, there's some irony there. Um, talk to me about Wesley Snipes. That's a name that we haven't heard before. Of course, we know Mr. T at this point, probably yesterday's news, but with the mainstream history they had for the original WrestleMania, that makes sense. George Foreman is back uh, on top of the world. Just a few years prior to this, he had a heavyweight championship run again in boxing. And of course, uh, he's got the George Foreman grill here, taking the world by storm. Shaquille O'Neal is one of the hottest basketball players on the planet being drafted in 92. So we're just a couple of years into his run, but he captured the imagination and was doing all kinds of mainstream commercials. And he broke a backboard, which was the first time anybody had seen anything like that on a big stage. And, uh, he had, you know, movie offers and lots of other stuff. So there's lots of mainstream publicity, but it just sort of seems thrown in there. Oh, and Wesley Snipes, how did that one come about? It didn't. You know, it's interesting that you said, while not confirmed, there have been serious, serious negotiations. Sorry, that never happened. There, I mean, T's name, you know, thrown around. I, I don't remember really discussing Wesley Snipes. I could guarantee you that there were no negotiations with him. You know, it may have been a name, you know, p- perhaps through Barry Bloom or, or somebody or Jesse the Body Ventura who may had, have had a relationship with them. There may have been a conversation in catering, but that is not a serious conversation. And I'm not even admitting there was this conversation in catering. I'm just suggesting that it could have happened, but somehow it's reported that it is a serious negotiation. I find that fascinating. Okay, I almost don't want to do this, but here we go. Meltzer reported, <laughs> pro wrestling evolved from the world of carnivals some three quarters of a century ago. Many of its terminologies like mark, work, put over, and even its hidden insider language called carny and much of its value structure, which is so bizarre to an outsider looking in, are all lasting remnants of its carnival beginnings. And it may be on the way to going full circle. WCW's vice president, Eric Bischoff is working on a new deal. Well, actually numerous deals. The one we're talking about isn't signing Hulk Hogan. That well-publicized deal has been finished and Hogan's first match will be against Ric Flair on the July 17th bash of the beach in Orlando. No, not joining forces with AAA. Although meetings are tentatively scheduled for this week. And while the nuts and bolts aren't put together, there's a lot of talk of a November pay-per-view which would combine promotional talents, but likely not involve WCW wrestlers. But long-term, perhaps the most important deal is yet another deal with Disney. One to put wrestling permanently back in its original carnival element. A deal not yet completed has been on the table where WCW wrestling will become a permanent sideshow, like the train seals and dolphins at Disney world in Orlando, running two or three one hour wrestling shows throughout the day on a daily basis. Whenever the park is open. If that deal goes through, it is expected that all television will be taped out of Orlando and that the company's base of operations will be moved from Atlanta to Orlando. All kidding aside, if the deal makes the company money, then it's a good deal. Even though in many ways it changes what a wrestling company is based upon right now, very little, the pay-per-view shows and the 900 number are profitable aspects of the WCW business. And even with the weekly sleazy come-ons more hype than ever before on television 
and a lineup of supposedly far more marketable characters. The 900 line business is only half of what it was just two years ago before the business as a whole took its nosedive. The profit from those two streams, while not insignificant, hardly dent the reported 6 million in animal losses or annual losses WCW has suffered, which is where Hogan comes in to save the day. It's a fucking stretch to talk about Disney as being part of the carnival. I understand a little bit of the analogy, but taping TV there and being a sideshow like a dolphin, that's a fucking stretch, isn't it? Well, first of all, Dave, if you're listening, he's not, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, he certainly responds to a lot of what we talk about here uh, in his social media. So I'll just assume he's listening and says he doesn't. I hate to break it to you, Dave. I really, really do. I, I know you're limited in your scope. I know you don't get out of the house much. You know, but the seals and the dolphins are at SeaWorld. There aren't any at Disney World. Oh, my just, gosh. Just saying. You know, you kind of, you kind of, kind of co-mingling, you know, attractions Come to on. help make yourself, you know, look good. I mean, it's just a fact. I mean, he wrote it. I didn't write it. You talk, read it. Talk I'm to, not making it up. But let me ask though: what, Was it considered? Hey, we're going to run shows multiple times a day, every day. No, no, and that's just another fabrication. You know. Right, right there with the trade seals and dolphins. And by the way, when you when you started this off and you said, "Oh, I almost hate to do this," I thought you were going to talk about the fact that, according to Dave, I was negotiating with Mike Tyson to become a part of the Bash at the Beach, even though he was in jail. That was really cool. It's another Dave Meltzer report, and it's probably where because I could never figure out how you know over the course of the, you know the last. 10 or 15 years, and especially since you and I started doing this podcast, there's always been this, is it true you were negotiating with Mike Tyson? And I, 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 where the hell did that come from? I've never had a conversation with Mike Tyson or anybody that represents him or is associated with him. Not an in-law, not a cousin, not an agent or attorney, or certainly not Mike. And I could never figure out where that came from. And then in, in the notes for the show, I, I see that Dave suggested that I'm also negotiating with Mike Tyson but he's not likely to appear because he's in prison and they won't let him out. <laughs> so that makes the seals and a dolphin comment look really, really dumb. Um, no, that was never part of it. The, the idea of going to Disney was always going to be to produce our syndicated television show. We were going to go down there for however many days at a time. Usually it was five, six, seven days. We would go down there and we would shoot, you know, eight, 13 weeks worth of television all at one time. Then we'd pack up our stuff and go home. So I, I don't know where this seals and dolphins and train pony and circus clown, you know, narrative that Dave fabricated in his mind. I don't know where that came from. You'd have to ask him. I do want to ask, uh, about a supposed problem. Um, allegedly, and we're coming off slamboree sting beat Vader here to win the international title. Flair's going to retain the world title over Barry Windham and supposedly they're supposed to be rude defending the title against sting, but there's some problems between rude and flair before the show Meltzer would say the problem between flair and rude at slamboree 
is that rude wanted to do an interview about losing the belt where he would complain about being stripped because he won with illegal means because when he lost to sting, it was because Harley race interfered. Flair didn't like the idea because he thought it would take legitimacy away from sting Vader and their match being for the belt. And because it would get rude over when there were no future plans for him, Flair had his own idea of what he wanted rude to say, but rude didn't like it and walked out a few hours before the show. I think you've touched on this before, but what's the real story? I don't know if that was the real story or not. I'm not going to bust it out and, and say it wasn't accurate because look, it was it, rude and flair didn't get along. It's that it's that simple. Um, it, that, that situation became exacerbated, uh, over something that is probably close to this. I would guess, uh, you know, I, I wasn't in the middle of the issue between flair and rude. I wasn't there when it happened. Uh, I wasn't a part of it, so I can't tell you word for word, uh, or issue for issue. If this is hundred percent true or 50% true or 2% true, I can't tell you that because I wasn't there. Um, but I can tell you that there was an issue because I had to ultimately resolve it. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll just have, I'll give Dave the benefit of the doubt on this because I just, I don't know any differently. The issue with uh flair and rude, uh, was it professional jealousy or, I mean, there's a rumor that perhaps, uh, rude made some advances towards Rick's valet who, uh, there was, there was some of that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Are we talking about Fifi? Yes. We're talking about my mother-in-law. We're talking about your mother-in-law. This is so much fun. This is <laughs> this is so weird, Conrad. Yeah, this is, is so weird. You yeah. were eleven years old, I think, when this was going on, right? What are you, thirty-six now? I'm thirty-seven. So yeah, I was. I was. Uh, you were twelve. Yeah, I was thirteen here. Okay, so you're thirteen years old. You're you're still, you know, prepubescent Alabama, probably looking forward to playing football doing all the things, you know, that a 13-year-old kid is, is doing at that time. And your future mother-in-law, yeah. <laughs> Fifi, yeah. is, is, is front and center in an issue between your future father-in-law and Rick Rude. And we're talking about it 25 years later. Isn't the world a fascinating place? That's fucking weird is what it is. It is nothing but weird, brother. This is just that's one of the reasons I love doing this show. It's just fascinating how all this stuff, you know, is still alive. It's still out there. And here you and I, you're, you're tangentially related, you know, to the principles of this discussion. And here we are talking about it on a podcast that nobody would have even imagined. Would have, I mean, hotlines were kind of the hot thing at the time. That were the big technology at the time. And here we are talking to wrestling fans all over the world. We have got listeners in fricking Tasmania for crying out loud. And it's just fascinating to me. Yeah. I'm not going to argue that. Uh, let's keep it going. I do want to talk about, uh, uh, the mainstream media that you're getting. The LA times are even writing an article about how WCW is now challenging the WBF for the top spot uh, in the industry. And whenever the LA times would report something, a lot of other newspapers pick it up. So this actually goes nationwide. And for the first time, you start to see mentions of uh, Ted Turner and, and, and all of his assets, but WCW being listed amongst those assets. That's really probably the first time it happens like that. And this one's 
uh, in the USA today and USA today, obviously back then much, much bigger deal than now. Uh, Meltzer is going to report that both Cactus Jack and Max Payne are on their way out of WCW. Cactus Jack here is 29. Max Payne is 31. And allegedly, they just gave word this past week that they were leaving the company. Uh, Payne had been Jack's tag team partner, but got lost in the shuffle when his team was being faced out for the Sullivan brothers. And then pretty much loses his spot completely when Evad Sullivan is injured and Kevin steps in the team with cactus Jack. He quit on or before the May 31st television tapings in Dalton, Georgia, effective immediately with the word being he had a meeting with the WWF this week and was widely expected to jump ship. We'll talk about cactus Jack in a minute, but we haven't spent a ton of time talking about max Payne. Uh, how do you remember him quitting here at these Dalton, Georgia tapings? I don't, I wasn't there. Um, or if I was there, I certainly don't recall it. Look, look I, and, I, and I don't want this to sound disrespectful, but I have to be honest. It, Max Payne was a non-issue. He was not an important part of our programming. He, I don't think anybody, especially me, including me, I should say, um, saw him as anything other than filler. He just wasn't wasn't that big of a deal. It sounds horrible. I know if he hears this or hears about it, he'd be pissed off. Probably wishes I could have said it differently, but I'd be disingenuous to suggest that anybody reacted to him quitting with anything other than, okay, let's get him replaced. I mean, it's just next. It's just, it was a non-issue. Meltzer will continue. Jack, who currently holds the WCW tag title with Kevin Sullivan, was pretty well expected to lose the belts to Roma and Orndorff next month. Gave notice on Wednesday that he'll be leaving to work independence in Japan, but will be fulfilling his WCW contract through September. His ECW appearances on the June 23rd and 24th show, which were booked through WCW rather than independently, weren't affected by this decision, although the result of those matches may be. Jack will be available to take independent dates starting September 1st. When you hear that, Hey, cactus Jack, who has, I mean, he's been a player for you guys. He's main evented against Vader. Maybe he is a little lost in the shuffle. Now, when you hear that he's not happy, is there any attempt to fix it? Or is he too seen as more of a bit player at this time? No, he's the exact opposite of that, that, you know, Mick and Mick, at that time, Cactus Jack and I, 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 we hung out, you know, there was a, there was a lady, uh, in, in Atlanta by the time, uh, her name was Sharon glass. Her husband was an extremely, extremely wealthy. Like we're probably talking hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more wealthy guy. And they had a beautiful home about 80 or 90 miles North of Atlanta, maybe not quite that far out. I mean, this place looked like something on a Condé Nast travel guide. You know, like if you ever visit Georgia, you have to go see this mansion. It was, uh, it, it may be, it may still be the most impressive home I've ever stepped foot in. And Sharon was, she was a huge wrestling fan and she would invite, you know, a handful of us over on the weekend. Her husband was just a, yeah, he was, a, he was an older guy. He was from South Georgia. He, he grown up in the furniture business, just real down home. Even though he lived in this, I don't, I can't even guess how much 
this i mean it had it had a full-size bowling alley in it it had a full-size olympic pool inside the house i mean it was nuts and and but her husband uh was he was so down to earth and so fun to hang out and funny you know and at the time he was about 70 years old so he was a lot older than us but he was just a great guy to hang out with and for whatever reason sharon or, or yeah, Sharon Glass. I think that was her name, Sharon or Sandy. I think it was Sharon. Um, she would invite us. So you know, my my wife and my kids would go over, and our kids would play in the outdoor pool, and you know, Mick and, and his wife, you know, and their kids would come over. I mean, so my relationship with Mick uh, was much different than it was with a lot of other talent, because I didn't, other than DDP, I didn't really hang out or socialize with a lot of other people. Uh, Mick was a little different. So I had a personal relationship that was, you know, important at the time, but also as a talent, when I first got to WCW as, you know, an announcer, Mick was like, you know, I'd look at the list of the things, you know, the people that I had to work with or, you know, needed to work with. And some of them were, you know, fun to work with. Mick was always a hoot because he was, he was great. You know, even back then, early on in WCW, he could, he could ad-lib. He could cut a great promo. And it was fun to collaborate with him because we didn't work off scripts. We had, at best, a bullet point outline of what we needed to talk about. More often than not, Mick just understood what he was doing and who he was in a program with. And he would ad-lib, and I'd have to follow him and set, or set him up and then follow him and react to what he was saying. That was a really fun way for me to work. So I not only did I like him personally, I loved working with him professionally. And his style was something that was a real issue in WCW because Mick wanted to do, or I should say Cactus Jack at this point, really wanted to do things in that character of Cactus Jack that were just too dangerous. They were dangerous to him. They were dangerous potentially to other wrestlers. And I'm not saying that you know Mick would put you know put another wrestler in jeopardy. But he would do things, you know, flying off the balcony, you know, dropping 30 or 40 feet from a balcony out onto a table next to the ring. Yeah, it's not worth it. You know, and I had so many of those conversations as a friend and a boss with Mick. And he was just determined that he wanted to work that style. And it just he, he was a liability. I mean, a, a real, you know, risk management, you know, business kind of liability, you know, to himself. And like I said, potentially to others. And, you know, he knew that we, we were trying to, you know, get him to refrain from doing a lot of the things that he felt he needed to do to get himself over. He felt like we were just not allowing him to be the character he needed to be. We felt like the character he needed to be was too much of a potential financial liability to, to the company as a whole. So that was the reason that Cactus Jack left. Um, and it, it, yeah, it was the exact opposite of Mick's pain. I didn't want to see Mick go, but there was just no way we could resolve it. It wasn't, there was no hostility. It wasn't, you know, we didn't argue about anything. It wasn't, wasn't like one might expect. It was a very civil, professional, you know, parting of the ways. And, you know, I like to think we parted as friends. Well, you probably weren't too friendly when this happened, Meltzer would report Sunday was one of the more embarrassing days in recent history of pro wrestling. WCW opened the day of blunders by airing the control center segment scheduled to run on June 26th, one week early. While what would be a minor problem under normal circumstances, this being a week with a major show, 
The segment revealed that Ric Flair had beaten Sting, quote, this past Thursday to become the unified world champion. And because of what took place at the clash, Hogan wanted a title shot at July 17th at the Bash of the Beach pay-per-view. The segment also revealed, among other things, that Steve Austin and Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan retained their respective titles at the clash and would be defending them against Ricky Steamboat and Paul Orndorff and Paul Roma at Bash at the Beach. Needless to say, WCW officials who are attempting to pull out the past miscues behind them and proclaim a new era with the signing of Hulk Hogan saw the new era get underway with yet another of the seemingly endless gaffes that have plagued the company in recent years. Realistically, this isn't going to hurt the TV rating for the clash nor the buy rate. Since the vast majority of pay-per-view buyers know full well, the results are predetermined and don't care, but it's still an embarrassment when the company accidentally rubs the fact that not only in their viewers faces, but in their own faces. Luckily, if there is such a thing, the ratings for the Sunday show have been poor in recent weeks, and there was no reason to believe that this would be any different. Chat me up here. When you see that they played the wrong fucking tape and they gave away spoilers on our own show, are you hitting the fucking roof or what? Yep. Yep. I certainly was. I certainly did. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how to react to it. It was embarrassing. You know, Dave's right about that. I was livid. Uh, I, You know, when it happened, I was on the phone immediately. My phone was blowing up when it happened, and I got on the phone immediately. And, of course, you know, as is probably the case too many times, you know, everybody was pointing the finger at somebody else. I think partly because nobody really understood how it happened uh, until a couple days later. So defensively, everybody kind of pointed fingers in the other direction. Uh, but it was a post-production faux pas, mistake, blunder, if you will. You know, it's hugely embarrassing. And I did get hot. I was, like, throwing furniture hot. Anybody get fired? No. No. Despite the fact that, you know, I had such a reputation for loving to fire people, I didn't. I should have. You know, in... I, I would have today, you know, there's a lot of things I would do differently today than I did back then. I wouldn't have thrown furniture. I would have just picked up the phone, figured out who was responsible for that and more than likely fired them. But that's not what happened. Wade Keller is going to continue this talk about, um, WCW perhaps moving a space of operations from the CNN center in Atlanta down to Orlando and one of the things written here is motivation for considering such a move is that being in Orlando, WCW officials believe, uh, it would lead to better opportunities for their top wrestlers to get into movies since castle rock and new line cinema movie production studios are actually located in Orlando and skeptics within WCW are speculating that Eric Bischoff would pull for such a move because it would bring him closer to those other opportunities and connections outside of wrestling. Should his long-term future not be in the wrestling business. Rumors built over this past two weeks among WCW wrestlers are that even with Hulk Hogan signing Bischoff's long-term security is not assured unless TV ratings increase. So of course we know the move is not going to happen and we've talked about why, but do you remember there being some sort of rumor that, Hey, maybe one of the reasons they want to go is castle rock and new line cinema. Yeah. Wade Keller created that rumor right here in that, in that publication. That's where that rumor came from. He made that shit up. That had nothing.
we probably had 60% of our talent lived in Florida. So, you know, producing a show in Florida, forget about all of the other um, efficiencies of scale that we would be able to enjoy by producing our shows at an actual television studio instead of showing up in arenas all over the Southeast where we were the only ones that did because fans didn't. That was a major problem for us. And I know we've talked about that before, but within the context of this question and Keller's statement here, I think it's really important that our listeners, at least, because they are the smartest wrestling fans in the world, those who listen to this show. And we work hard every week to make sure that that is the case. But go back to the reason why we went to Disney in, in, in Orlando in the first place. It wasn't because we were knocking them dead in arenas all over the southeast. It was because when we would show up to do three or four or five hours with a television taping, we would have, you know, an entire crowd of maybe, I don't know, 175 people, half of them drunk, and be sleeping in their seats at ringside before the taping was over. That's that's what I was that's what I inherited. That's where you know, all of the bookers, all the wrestling geniuses, all those wrestling people like Bill Watts, you know, that's that's what they left me. And we couldn't continue to, continue to produce shows there anymore. It just wasn't working. It looked horrible for television. So the idea was to move to Disney MGM Studios to solve that problem. Once we got down there and we started working with the economies of scale to make sense out of it, the idea dawned on me that, hey, wait a minute. 60% of my talent budget lives in in Florida. How much money am I going to save if I don't have to fly them all over the place to, to produce television, number one? Number two, it was a no-tax state. It, it was a right-to-work state. There were a lot of other technical, financial reasons to move to Orlando. I can assure you that me being in proximity to New Line of Castle Rock didn't have one thing to do with it. Not one. This was something that Wade Keller made up and now, you know, afterwards lived as a part of the, you know, Eric Bischoff just wants to be a Hollywood guy narrative. That's where this stuff comes from. It had nothing to do with it. Nothing at all to do with it. Let's it talk was strictly a financial consideration. Talk about one more piece of news from Wade Keller before we get to the show. Uh, Steve Austin was separated from Colonel Parker in order for Austin to become more credible without a comic book character at his side. Early speculation has Austin Sting, Flair Hogan, and Perfect Vader as the three main events at Starcade. Austin may enter as WCW champion and lose to Sting thanks to Hogan preventing interference from Flair. And the closing scene of Starcade would then be Hogan handing Sting the WCW world title and pointing to him as the new generation and mid-ring as fireworks shoot off above the ring. Now, what's fascinating about this is Austin Sting, not going to happen. Perfect Vader is even speculating here that Kurt may wind up with the rights to Mr. Perfect or somehow WCW may. Clearly, that didn't happen. Is this too just fantasy armchair quarterbacking you know it's not even armchair quarterbacking this is this is fantasy booking it, it you know i i consider armchair quarterbacking you know talking about what should have happened after it happened in this case nothing happened this is just you know kind of like a little kid you know in a chat room 
going, ah, oh, would it be cool if we did this? Let's pretend we're writing the show. God, what would you do if you were booking? I do this. I do this. I would. Oh man! And we'll end the show with all these, you know, the pyro and. I mean, he's literally laying out a scene in a show that never happened and was never discussed. It's bizarre to me. It's and by the way, it's not bad. <laughs> you know, from a from a from a creative perspective, if all of those people would have been available and things would have been entirely different and they would have been on the roster, I, I'm not sure I, I I wouldn't have seriously considered this scenario. But that doesn't change the fact that it never was considered. Because none of those variables, as you just pointed out, none of it ever happened. We didn't have Mr. Perfect. You know, we, we, we didn't have Steve Austin. None of those things were going to happen. It's just bizarre to me. Well, you, you had Steve Austin at the end of night. Well, we, we, well, we weren't, yeah, we weren't going to have, yeah, I guess we. You weren't going to put him in there with Sting. Right. But this, this scenario, as it was laid out, as exciting as it sounds, was pure fantasy all right let's get to the clash of the champions Meltzer would say i'm in the minority on the clash because i didn't think it was a good show there were many good aspects to the show the most obvious being the formatting unlike most clashes there was no attempt to do too much on the show thereby rushing situations and muddling up other situations causing the key matches and angles to come out of the show with little impact this show had one purpose to get over hulk hogan versus rick flair and their match in orlando and don't confuse the issue by emphasizing anything else. In that regard, the show served its purpose. Eric, you watched the show for the first time in 25 years this week. Do you agree? It served the purpose. You got over Flair and Hogan. Well, I agree that it got over Flair and Hogan. You know, and again, I sound like I should be getting some kind of a commission on WWE Network revenue. But go back and look at this clash. Go and forget about, you know, as Dave Belser said, you know, I may be in the minority here. That's because he's so above the rest of the wrestling audience. He looks at wrestling from an entirely different perspective, given his vast knowledge and, and instinct and understanding of the art of professional wrestling. That's the narrative that Dave would like his readers to believe. And then he goes on to say, what a great show it was because it served its purpose and it had a better format and we didn't try to cram 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag. My words, not his. <laughs> it's just like, okay, Dave, whatever you're, you, you, you know, you are the fucking wizard of Oz. You're the all knowing genius that thinks at a level that is so much higher than the rest of us. We certainly can't relate to the way you look at a show. However, if you go back, Conrad, or any one of our listeners go back and actually watch this show and the crowd's reaction to it. And we'll go through the matches and even some of the less significant matches on the card got tremendous crowd reaction. People were into the matches. Larry Zabisco, Steven Regal, we'll talk about it in more detail. Go watch this show and forget about the match. You go ahead and watch the match, but pay more attention to the audience they were selling punches to the midsection. The crowd was reacting to those things. This, there were so many great things about this show. Now, compared to today, you know, and the expectations in the audience today, they're much, much different than they were back in the mid-90s. No doubt about it. But if you just judge the show by the crowd's reaction to it, not by, you know, Dave's vastly superior opinion of it, and I, I disagree. There were so many great things about this show. 
there were some things I wish we would have done differently. Again, to, you know, 25 years later, I have a much different perspective on what I think could have and should have happened back then that would have made it so much better. And it would have been a lot easier. I mean, it would have been very easy to accomplish some, you know, small little things that could have vastly improved the overall quality of the show and, and probably the long-term health of WCW in the making. But at the same time, this show is a standalone just based on crowd reaction alone, I think defies the, you know, kind of arrogant observation of one Dave Meltzer. And don't take my word for it. doesn't matter what I think. I'm too close to it. You know, I'm defensive. I got my fingerprints on the show. I'm, I'm defending myself. That's what people are going to think when I'm saying these things. If you don't believe me or if you think any of the above, go back, watch the show. You tell me if it was a bad show. I'm curious. How much of a hard-on do you have for Dave Meltzer? I have none. I'm going to tell you something, my friend. If you never brought up his name again, I wouldn't either. I don't. I. I don't. You know. I don't come up with this research. I don't sit sit at home all week long. And go, hey, I'm. I'm going to find a way to bury Dave Meltzer. He buries himself with this stupid shit, and you put me in a position of having to react to it. I don't like doing it. I honestly, I'm sick of saying his name. Let's let's just play along for a minute. What source should I use, if not the Observer, for us to go back and sort of discuss the news and notes from the company? Oh no 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 no! Look, I'm not I'm not telling you you shouldn't do it. I know you have to do it, but I don't know. Maybe we take a closer look at Guy Evans' book. Maybe we talk about some of the you know the things that you know he's written about that I didn't even know about was taking place in my own company. But we and I know we rely because we're looking back at a period of time and Dave Meltzer was the 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 leading, I guess, I'm not going to call him a reporter or a journalist, but the leading dirt sheet purveyor at the time and covered a lot of this stuff. And it does give us an opportunity to go look at certain moments. But when we bring them up, when we read these quotes, when you read these quotes to me. Just because I react as strongly as I do isn't because I hate Dave Meltzer. I don't hate Dave Meltzer. I really don't. I could literally go sit down, have a beer, and laugh with him. It's not a personal issue. But some of this stuff, like the fucking dolphins and the sharks and the whatever it was, the penguins, you know, at Disney World, just it's it's so on the face of it stupid that I have to put it in context. I mean, just literally last week he said, I can't wait till I see that motherfucker again. Well, you get me hot. You know, sometimes I, I get you don't get me hot. I get myself hot. I know I do. I mean, I literally do. Sometimes you know, my, I can feel my blood pressure going up. I mean, I, you know, I want to go punch. You know, I want to put my fist through a wall. I mean, I, I, I don't know why it shouldn't bother me. I mean, it was twenty five years ago. It's not costing me any money now. Right. <laughs> so I don't know why it makes me angry, but it does. I get over it by the time you and I are done talking about it. If I. We went to the little, you know, the Silver Dollar Bar here in Cody, Wyoming, and you know, little Dave, you know, was was sitting at the bar having a beer on his way to Yellowstone. I'd walk up to him and buy him a beer and laugh and joke about it, and then as long as he didn't say anything really fucking stupid, I wouldn't punch him. <sighs> so the show opens with Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan, and Mean Gene Okerlund discussing Hulk Hogan's arrival and the upcoming unification match, before talking about who will. Sensual Sherry's man be at the end of the night. So the main event is Sting and Ric Flair and not Sensational Sherry. That was WWF. This is WCW. Sensual Sherry is going to pick a side in our main event. Let's get to the first match. 
We've got Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan retaining their tag titles, beating the Nasty Boys in 10 minutes and 35 seconds. The match has two referees, which wasn't previously announced. It's all brawling, and Meltzer would say it's uh, a lot sloppier than what they're used to. Uh, the Nasty Boys are uh, going to do some crazy spots here. Of course, Cactus Jack is too, the most significant being a diving elbow off the apron. And uh, the nasty boys move, which enables him to crack his head on the rail. Uh, a star in three quarters is what the match gets. Uh, and the finish comes when uh, Dave hits Sags with his crutch while he's in the ring, and then Cactus gets to use that double arm DDT on knobs. And there's your there's your pin one two three. You know Cactus is leaving. Why the decision to uh, have the I mean, have him keep the straps here. Why not just have him drop it to the nasty boys? Uh, well, number one, I, I, as we touched on earlier, I didn't subscribe to the traditional wrestling philosophy of when the guy's on his way out, try to bury him. Um, unless, you know, there were certain circumstances where someone may deserve that, or we had to make sure that we protected ourselves. That wasn't the case with Mick. You know, there there, there was a good professional working relationship and personal relationship with him. So I'm guessing the reason was that we were going to do it down the road and it wasn't necessary um, to do it right here. Didn't feel the need to bury him. I do want to pick up on one thing, though, when you set this up. You know, we, we called her sensuous Sherry as opposed to sensational Sherry. Um, actually, WWF... That's who they were at the time. Could have easily sued us for that. <laughs> <laughs> of course they could have. Now, they, they were coming, you know, there was a whole lot of, you know, legal stuff going on at the time, as we all know about. And I'm sure that, you know, litigation was not, you know, like a real fun thing for them to contemplate at that point. Probably wanted to get their, you know, feet underneath them again and get the ball rolling without that kind of a distraction. But in... In law and trademark law, there is a term. It's called confusingly similar. It's a broad term, but I guarantee you, based on what I've learned over the course of 25 years, having been on the short end of this legal stick, they could have easily shut that down by just simply claiming that they had the trademark for sensational sherry and sensuous sherry was confusingly similar, but they chose not to. And probably because this was at a period of time, I think, I'm speculating, I don't know this, but this might have been fallen into the, hey, let's just not even acknowledge the competition, even though Hogan was coming over and all that. Let's not draw attention to it. I'm guessing. I don't know. But they could have they, they could have stopped us from that. Anyway, the match, ah, you know, you know how I feel about these types of matches. You know, nasty boys are, you know, friends of mine still to this day. By the way, they still wear the same gimmicks to the ring. And I'm not talking about the same looking gimmicks. They wear the same gimmicks that they wore in 1994. So, yeah, it was interesting to look at. Yeah, it was a little disappointing, though. You know, I'd come to uh, expect Cactus Jack and the nasty boys to beat the shit out of each other. And this was okay, but it wasn't what I had maybe hoped for. Next up, we've got mean gene plug in the WCW hotline before he brings out the international world heavyweight champion sting who cuts a promo on Ric Flair. And he says, he's a great white shark and he's coming to get you. Hi, 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 hi. 
Uh, and as silly could you as do that? One, could you do that one more time? As silly as that sounds, I, he, I, 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 he fucking pulled it off. It was fucking stupid. And, and when you see him do it, you're like, "Well, that's fucking stupid." And then you're like, "Well, I mean, I guess he got away with it." The crowd reacted to it. So, yeah, there you go. What do you think of this promo from Sting? I kind of liked it. You know, it was again go back at the time. This is obviously pre Crow. Um, this is when Sting was at the height of you know the Surfer Sting. Glitter Sting, whatever you want to call it, uh, character. And he that was his character. He was just, like, electrified all of the time. And, you know, I think the, the silly little, you know, great white shark I, 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 um, actually kind of fit nicely into his character. So uh, it didn't bother me at all. I, I thought it had a lot of energy. It got the point across, and it worked. This is the strangest thing I've ever said to another human on a podcast. And that, boy, that's saying something. Um can we do that great white shark noise together on a count of three, just for fun? Sure. Yeah. Right. Three, two, one. What the fuck is wrong with us? All right. Next up, <laughs> the guardian angel is going to get a win over Tex Slazenger in one minute and 44 seconds. Um, that's what right. Angel's gimmick is three strikes and you're out. Tex hit him three times before angel exploded and went right to the finish. A nothing squash. He gave it a dud. And you guys had like a long video sort of explaining what the guardian angels were all about. Boy, you talk about something that was 1994, the guardian angels, you know, had, I guess like a spokesperson who would appear on a lot of you know, daytime television shows. And that's probably where most people became familiar with the concept of the guardian angel. And this of course is the former big boss man, the real life Ray trailer. Is this as close as you can get to the big boss man character and still sort of feel like you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in America? Uh, I mean, that wasn't the thinking going in at all, Conrad. The thinking, I mean, look, we had to get away from the big boss man character. Right. We tried to, you know, tap dance our way around it. That didn't work. Um, But, you know, I was paying a lot of attention. I've always watched a lot of news. Um, and current events. And I saw Curtis Lewa is his name, the representative that you refer to. We'll see him later on in a vignette on this show. Curtis Lewa was getting a ton of press nationwide. Yeah. You know, people don't remember this, but, you know, New York City is a relatively clean, safe, very big city. Um, city now. But, you know, back in the 90s, mid-90s, it was just, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. It was a dangerous place. Times Square was a frightening place to be back then. And the Guardian Angels were this, I don't want to say vigilante, but they were these citizens who acted together to to try to make the city a better place. And as a result of it, they got a ton of mainstream news. Not a little bit of it, a ton of it. Yes, they were on news and they were on morning talk shows and things like that, but they were in magazine stories, they were in Newsweek, they were in Time Magazine. I mean, they were getting a ton of press. So this was twofold. One, it was, okay, we need to come up with character for Ray Trailer. That not anything close to the big boss man. How do we do that? And in my case, because my primary motivation in almost everything I did, from signing Hulk Hogan to going to Disney, MGM Studios, and so many of the other things I did, Shaquille O'Neal and all that, was all about getting awareness and getting press and getting acknowledged, not by wrestling fans. That wasn't my primary goal by advertisers, by the pay-per-view companies, 
by television stations because syndication, that's something that we don't talk about a lot. You know, syndication was still very much a part of the WWF and WCW business model back in the day. Yes, you know, cable was a was, was a priority and cable was the biggest footprint we had, but syndication was still very, very important. Rob Garner, who was our vice president of syndication at the time, needed as many tools as he could get to. And this was just another way that we could create a sizzle reel, demo tape, call it whatever you want. In television, it's called a sizzle reel, demonstrating to a local sales manager that WCW was something other than that distant number two regional wrestling promotion that we were now engaging not only with Hulk Hogan, but look at over here. Look what we're doing with this character. You know, and look at all the press that this is getting. So that that was more of a motivation than trying to sneak up on a Ray Trailer character, or excuse me, a big boss man character. At this point, we uh, go backstage and we see a long white limousine pull into the building, and Jimmy Hart jumps out first, and then Hulk Hogan, and there is a crowd response. There's some cheers, but there's some boos too. Were you? Shocked by that? Or since you're in South Carolina, does that not shock you? Uh, shocked wouldn't be the right word. Uh, did we anticipate it mm, to a degree? Were we hoping it wouldn't happen? Definitely. When it did happen, uh, was it a little deflating? Of course it was. Of course it was. I'd be lying to you if I said, if I said to you that it didn't. Uh, I'm sure it bothered Hulk. Uh, I'm sure he heard every one of those boos. I'm sure that's not what he wanted to hear either on a personal level and on a professional level. Uh, certainly, even though we anticipated it might happen, was very disappointed when it actually did. Steve Regal is going to regain the WCW television title when he pins Larry Zabisco in nine minutes and 25 seconds. Regal comes out wearing an awful uh, wig that just looks ridiculous. Uh, and the match is okay. Uh, I was never a huge fan of Larry Zabisco's work. I thought he was a tremendous commentator, but in the ring, I, I don't know. I was just sort of take him or leave him, but I am a big Regal fan. So I'll watch this one thinking, oh, this will be good. I mean, we know Larry is a very capable performer, former AWA world champion, but I just thought this one fell a little flat for me. Meltzer gave it a star and a quarter. The finish comes when, of course, there's a little interference from the outside to help Regal and, uh, he snatches the pin, and of course, he's holding the ropes. So he's cheating to win like a good heel should. I thought the match was all right. What do you think? Uh, and this is, you know, this is taste. This is like, a, you know, I like, you know, roasted Brussels sprouts, and maybe you don't. You know what I mean? It, it's a matter of taste. I will tell you, I was very excited to watch this match back. I really was. Now, again, I'm, I'm 64 years old. I came up watching, you know, when I was a, a preteen and a teen and even to my early, ad, uh, you know, adulthood, the style of wrestling that I really grew up on was quite different than it is today or even, even what it became in the mid to late 90s under my watch. The style definitely changed. Everything evolves. Everything does. Music does. Sitcoms do. Movies do. Everything evolves. Sports you know, watch an NFL game on tape from 1962 and compare it to today. You know, it's like, how the hell did this ever become a big deal? Right. But I personally really enjoyed this match because what I enjoy is different than probably what you enjoy or maybe what a lot of people enjoy now. 
But if you look at the psychology in this match, you know, forget for a minute that fucking ridiculous wig at the get up that Regal came to the ring with that did make my skin crawl for a minute. But once the bell rang and the match started, God, I love the psychology. I love the pacing. I love the little things that they did throughout the body of this match that set themselves up to get a great crowd reaction from doing something that today I'm not even sure people would do because it's not a big enough move. It's not athletic enough. And, and again, I'm not being critical. I'm not one of those guys, even though I'm you know outside the demo of probably the average wrestling fan at this point. I'm not one of those guys that wishes it would go back to the old days. I'm not that guy at all. In fact, I enjoy watching what wrestling has evolved into <clears throat> over the last 10 years, over the last five years, especially, you know, with all of the new streaming platforms and the, the growth of the indies and the ability to watch, you know, wrestling from all over the world much more easily now than ever before in history. I like what wrestling has become, but it doesn't mean when I go back and I watch something like this, Zabisco and Regal here, that I don't remember this style of wrestling very fondly. I, I really, really do. And I, and probably not just because I find it entertaining as a fan or a viewer, but probably because even more so now, because I, I look at these things so much differently now than I did in the mid nineties or even the late nineties. I, I really look at the product and I break it down differently and appreciate it differently than I did back then. But I, I cannot help, but just, I shake my head at how undervalued and underrated some of the psychology of, of guys like Steven Regal and Larry Zabisco are. It's just, it, it's a lost art, you know, and, and maybe it's not lost. Maybe it's just not relevant anymore. Perhaps that's it. But when I watch this match, I, I really liked it. And as odd as this is going to sound to you, um, or, you know, many, probably everybody I, personally, this is one of my favorite matches on the card. Not because it got the greatest crowd reaction, not because it was, you know, for no other reason than I I really see and respect the psychology of what these guys did and the results that it got them. The truth is, Larry, yeah, as a wrestler, as a character, yeah. I mean, and he was a great friend of mine. I mean, I was friends with Larry in AWA before I even got to WCW. Larry Zabisco was the first guy, my very first day. I walked into wherever I was. I think it was Anderson, South Carolina, uh, to the arena on my very first television taping. Dust, I was right. I rode to the building with Dusty Rhodes and Doug Dillinger and Janie Angle. And when I walked into that building, Larry Zabisco was the first guy that walked up to me and said, kid, keep your head down. You'll have a job here forever. <laughs> and, and, so, I mean, this is not a personal thing, what I'm about to say, but as a wrestler, as a talent, even going back to 1994, Larry Zabisco was really middle of the card kind of guy. And so was Steve Regal at this point. But that doesn't mean that this match wasn't a phenomenal match from a psychology point of view. And that's one of the things that I, I love about wrestling. And again, I don't want to keep harping on this. Go back. Watch this match. If you're a young wrestler, if you aspire to be a young wrestler, or even if you've been in the business for five or ten years or longer, go back and not only watch the match, but pay a real close attention to how the crowd reacts and why 
you know, you'll see it's like these guys set. It's like they're playing chess from a psychology perspective. And they have the audience in the palm of their hand. Earlier in the show, when we first started, I said, no, I'm going to talk about Regal and Zabisco and how you get a major crowd reaction from something as simple as a single punch to the midsection. How fucking unflashy is that? How unathletic is that? But watch the crowd reaction it gets and then try to understand why based on what was going on moments before that. And that's why I think, you know, going back and watching some of these things are so much fun for me personally. But I like this match. I got winded talking like that. That's the longest Larry Zabisco match has ever been broken down in the history of recorded audio. Well, that's why we have the smartest <laughs> wrestling fans in the world that listen to our show. Next up, Jesse Ventura is going to join Tony Schiavone in commentary. Um, you know, this is kind of fun. I know that we've talked about Jesse a little bit on the show, but I enjoyed Jesse with Tony Schiavone, and I'm, I'm probably in the minority there, but I guess we should mention that uh, Zabisco won a special challenge match at Slamboree. That earned him a TV title match. Then Zabisco won the belt on May 28th, which ended Regal's 225-day reign as champion. That set up the return match here, and that was Zabisco's one and only TV title reign. Now things are back to normal. Regal's your champ. Uh, we get an interview up next. Rhodes and Anderson are going to do their interview, saying they're going to team up at the pay-per-view against Terry Funk and Bunkhouse Buck, which, of course, means it's uh, all but certain Anderson is going to turn on Rhodes. I mean, that's what the Andersons do to the Rhodes. We've got Steve Austin out next. He's going to be defending his U.S. title against Johnny B. Bad. And they're going to go 10 minutes and 25 seconds. But the the finish is uh, a little confusing. Um, Austin is draped bad over the middle rope, runs across the ring, bad moves. Austin destroys himself. As bad as being held back by the ref, Austin pulls out a foreign object, hits bad with it, and pins him with an inside cradle and he hides the weapon under his armpit and a second ref comes in, raises the arm, reveals the object. And, uh, then bad pins Austin as the second ref counts the fall. No decision was ever announced until the following week. And, uh, yeah, star in three quarters, a little confusing ending here. Uh, before we go, before we break this down, just want to say I loved the Dustin Arn promo. I mean, I don't, I've never heard Arn do a promo that wasn't like an eight or seven or an eight on a scale of ten. This was knocking on nine point five, nine point eight. I mean, he's just so good. He was so so good. I guarantee you, they probably didn't even talk about that promo for more than a minute before they went out and did it. <clears throat> they just knew what they had to do, and I mean, it just Arn is. Again, one of the more underrated talents, I think, in our industry when it comes to cutting a promo. Just want to Why does it just fall out of his mouth naturally? I mean, even when you're hanging out with him in real life, he will just come up with stuff off the top of his head that is either insightful to the point where you think, ah, fuck, why didn't I think of that? Or hilarious. I mean, he, he runs the gamut. And there's not a lot of guys who can do both. You know, there's lots of guys who can crack jokes, but then when it comes time to, you know, Hey, let's get some meat and potatoes. Maybe it's not there. And the opposite of that's true too. Lots of guys can give you sound 
meat and potatoes. Oh, what about this? And here's what you should do. And have you thought about that? But then they can't be witty and, and irreverent. Arn does it all. And it seems like he does it effortlessly. He, he, he does. And remember last week we were talking about, you know, how, from my, my perspective, at least <clears throat> one of the challenges with a lot of talent historically is they go out there and try to be a wrestler that they think they should be, or they try to be a wrestler that they've seen in the past, or they're imitating a character. They're not becoming the character. They're imitating a character. And with a guy like Arn, he, he, he's the epitome of knowing how to be that character. He is that character. He is that guy. He turns up the volume when the red light's on and he has to because he knows that's what his job is. And to really communicate it, you have to go a little over the top. But he really knows how to be the character and not pretend he's the character. And it's a subtle difference, but Arn is, like I say, the epitome of, of, of someone who gets it. That's when you, when, when people always use terms, or I should say always, I've heard the term so many times, or the reference where, oh, this guy just doesn't get it. You know, he's just, he just doesn't get it. Well, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. But I think Arn is an example of, you know, Ric Flair too. Ric Flair's right there with him, you know, Hulk Hogan too, in a much different way different presentation steve austin clearly say that the perfect example mcfoley in, in certain characters they know who that character is and they become that character it's like a method actor really not to go too far you know in that direction but it's a difference i think between a method actor and somebody who doesn't really understand how to act and goes out there and tries to pretend to be the character they think they should be and that's where the disconnect happens. And that's why the disconnect doesn't happen with a guy like Hart. Um, John V. Bad, Steve Austin, you know, I don't care what, what anybody gave it as far as stars. I thought this was a great match. I really, really thought it was a great match. I thought Johnny B. Bad, this might have been one of the best matches Johnny B. Bad ever had. I mean, his, his stuff was crisp, his timing was great. Um, the only, the, the only match where I think I saw on this card timing better than Johnny and Steve had here was in the flare match coming up. I, I thought this was a great, great match. The finish, I, it's funny because I was watching this. I have a, you know, little yellow legal pad next to me as I'm watching the show, I jot down notes or time codes or things that I want to remember to talk about. And I was in a minute, I'm looking at my notes right now and it's like, fucked up. I, I didn't even finish the word up. I was going to say fucked up finish. And then as I was writing it, because I thought the finish was happening, I realized it wasn't. And I saw Steve put that, those brass knucks, you know, in his armpit. And I, I'm going to call Steve probably the next, when I get, you know, when I get some time, I'm going to call Steve and I doubt he remembers who came up with this finish. But if he does remember who came up with this finish and he might, I would bet him a hundred dollars that he came up with that finish because that finish was so atypical of a WCW finish and it played itself out. You may have heard me refer in the past to, um, three-dimensional finishes or, 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 or three-part finishes. 
just when you think the finish is going to happen, and I'm not talking about your standard false finish, which is just a setup. I'm talking about when you really feel like, okay, that's the finish. Just like when I was making my notes. Okay, that's the finish. Well, no, it's not the finish. Wait a minute. What are they doing? And then the subtlety and the reality, you know, of that, those breast nuts falling out from Steve's armpit. The fact that Steve was facing the hard camera and he had those breast nuts that was all wrapped in white tape so they were easier to see. He made sure that the camera could see it. So the audience at home was following along with this false finish in, in, a, in a storyline kind of a way, not in a, you know, kick out on a count of 2.9 kind of way. This was in a storyline, three-dimensional finish. I, at first, I was ready to hate it, and I started writing that note. And then my next note was, I love this finish. And I really did. Was it confusing? Yes. Was it entertaining? Yes. Did it lead us you know, to next week's TV? Absolutely. And that's what a good storyline is supposed to do. I liked it. I really did. And I, I thought the match was excellent. I was really... I don't want to say proud of Johnny B. Bad, but I was really happy to see that, you know, Johnny had such a great match with Steve. It was, I thought Johnny looked better than he'd ever looked in WCW at this point. How fun is this? Two years later to the day, June 23rd, 1996, these guys would wrestle in the King of the Ring tournament, which Austin wins again. Then he wins the tournament where he goes on to coin the phrase Austin 316. Ta-da. One of the biggest stars ever. Just two years to the day after this, which is kind of fun. Crazy, isn't it? Let's tell you the backstory on this one. On June 11th, during an interview, Colonel Robert Parker says that Steve Austin is still under contract, but Austin will wrestle on his own from this point. And then later in the interview, Austin starts taunting Johnny B. Bad, and Bad comes out and knocks him out. A week later, Austin does a squash match, and Parker and Ming are at ringside, even though Parker, the week before, announces he's not going to be with Austin. But when he's at the Disney tapings, he's working without Parker. Talk to me a little bit about the hokey pokey with Colonel Parker and Steve Austin. Why did you think he needed him? And why was it time to move on without him? You know, I don't, I, I don't think I never thought he needed him. Number one, I'm not sure that I'm the one that put them together in the first place. I may have been. And again, I wasn't booking at this point. This was either dusty Rhodes or Ric Flair. I'm, I'm pretty sure it would have been dusty. And, and even, even if Rick was booking at this time, this was kind of a, you know, leftover dusty creative. I, I'm, and I like, I mean, Parker was great. He was entertaining as hell, not necessarily a, you know, reality based kind of character that eventually we went on to really appreciate, but he, he could talk and he was entertaining as hell. My issue with him is he was so damn tall. You know, and, and that's me coming up in Vern Gagne. You never want to have a manager that makes the talent look smaller. You never want to have an announcer that makes the talent look smaller. You always want the talent to shine and look larger than life. And when you've got a guy like Parker, who is probably six foot five, and then you've got, you know, Steve Austin, who's six foot, six foot one, whatever he is, uh, that was kind of a mismatch for me more than anything else. Let's get to uh, the next piece of the show here. Hogan's going to come out for an interview and he takes some booze and they grow louder and louder until they show flair on the video wall. And the place pops big time for flair. After a commercial, they air a taped interview of Hogan and Shaquille and the crowd again is booing it. Um, you gotta be a little disappointed. You know, this is, 
this is your bright new star in the live crowd here in the Carolinas, which I guess is to be expected. Not really digging it. Like we saw a little bit of this when he was getting out of the limo, but when he's out in front of the crowd and they're kind of not with it, when he comes back through, is there any sort of discussion or is everybody business as usual? Well, it, I think, you know, business as usual is, you know, probably not the best way to say it. I mean, there was still, there was a lot of adrenaline. There, there was still a lot of excitement. We had a job to do. Um, I don't think, you know, it's not that we ignored it, but the, that was not the time to dwell on it. There was nothing we were going to do to fix it. Like I said earlier, we knew it was likely to happen. Let's face it, WCW, the former NWA, there was a lineage there. Um, yes, Ted Turner, you know, bought the NWA, you know, out of bankruptcy and changed the NWA title to WCW title. And I wasn't even there at the time, so I don't know all the background on that story. But there is a NWA, was a NWA, WCW lineage, a lineage. A lot of the talent that was formerly a part of the, the, the heyday of the NWA was a part of WCW. So you'd have to be a moron not to expect that you're going to get an adverse reaction, you're going to get a negative reaction from hometown, hardcore, former NWA, current WCW fans when the WWF guy comes to town. I mean, we knew it was going to happen. As I said earlier, it's just that when it finally does, it kind of stings a little more than you thought it might. Right. And that's how we felt. But I think everybody just kind of, you know, put it in the back of their mind and went about their business. It it certainly changed, as we'll see later on in the show, at the finish of the, sh the next match. And, and Hogan came down and made the save and confronted Flair. He almost reversed it. The, the crowd reaction was almost 100% Hulk Hogan at that point, but certainly going at, at this point, prior to the end of the match we're about to discuss, as I've just covered, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it was 50-50 at best for, for Hogan. Let's get to uh, the real reason we're here. The main event, Ric Flair, Sting. I guess we should mention that uh, Nick Bockwinkel here as a representative a WCW official, and uh, we're going to see both belts. Of course, the the smaller belt that uh, Vader and Sting and Ron Simmons and Lex Luger sort of made famous, being the one that Ric Flair sports to the ring. And, of course, Surfer Sting, he's going to bring out the big gold belt. Both guys come out to what's classified as a mixed reaction, and then Sherry shows up, and she's got uh, something covering her face, like a... Uh, a bit of a mask as she makes her way down the ramp. And then when she gets to the end of the ramp, she moves the mask. So you can see that she's painted herself up to look like the stinger, which is kind of fun because she's historically been a heel, but now we're made to believe that she's made her selection and she's with sting. Uh, Meltzer would say, and it goes 17 minutes. I should mention that it turned into a very exciting match with the crowd into it far more than anything else on the show. I think the spot that people remember the most about this is when sting is gonna do a flying leap from the outside or, uh, from the inside of the ring to the outside and flair pulls her into the way and then sting collapses on her quite a big bump. Not something we saw a lot of in WCW when there were ladies involved. 
do you remember that spot being discussed and criticized or should we, shouldn't we beforehand or not so much? No, no, it wasn't. Nobody was worried about that spot. I, I will tell you what though, when I watched the show earlier before we started recording, I literally went back and watched that bump four or five times because you know, when I watched it the first time, I swear to God, I, I heard Sherry's head hit the guardrail. I thought he murdered her. I mean, again, I'm going to, I'm going to tip my hat to Ric Flair here. Talk about timing, the timing of him throwing Sherry right in front of himself to, to take that bump, that timing. I mean, you could not have, you couldn't have slipped a piece of paper between the gap of that going great or going bad. That's the, I mean, the margin was so thin, it was perfect. And it looked so real and believable. And I don't know if it was Sting's boot hit the rail. I don't know what it was that hit the rail. But I heard it, when Sherry hit, you know, when that impact happened and she hit the hit the concrete, I heard a definite thud on that guard. And I went, I went back and watched it three or four times to try to tell if she was really knocked out or not. I mean, it got me. 25 years later, it still got me. That's how great that bump was. Because I didn't remember it, you know, from 25 years ago. It's not like, you know, one of those memories that I've held on to. So seeing it for the first time today, you know, I had to go back and watch it three or four times. I thought, I thought for sure he killed her. I mean, it was brutal. And it was so good. I, and again, I'm, you know, I'll just, I'm going to read my notes. I've got it here. You know, I, I talk about the, the bump that we're talking about, by the way, if you're going to WWE Network to watch this, was at one hour, 25 minutes and 11 seconds. That's the time code on that bump. I encourage you to go back and look at it. You want to see what a bump should look like? You want to see what a really believable bump should look like? You want to see what, you know, a Academy Award-winning cell should look like? Not only from Sherry, who did, you know, she should have won an Oscar for her performance here, but Sting as well. He, re he should have won a Best Supporting Actor on that one. Phenomenal, phenomenal setup. And then I saw the roll-up, and, and again, because I didn't remember the finish. I didn't remember, you know, the Hogan run. I didn't remember any of that. I'm just watching it like it's happened today, right, for the first time. So I'm making my note, uh, another roll-up, another anticlimactic finish. My next note is it's a cerebral finish, meaning you had to really think about it. You had to see it coming. It, it's another one of those, not a three-dimensional finish, but a two-dimensional finish. Just when you thought you knew exactly how this thing was going to end, as I'm making my notes, being the guy that actually produced the show, who's been in the wrestling business for 32 years, who's probably seen 10,000 matches, produced 5,000 hours of it, kind of figure out, you know, you kind of think you know what you're doing. So as I'm watching this, and I think I know the finish is a roll-up, and then I see Sherry, you know, making her way over to Ric Flair and... She starts making those eyes, and I watch Flair's reaction to her in the center of the ring. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, this was a swerve. And sure enough, it became a swerve. I, I loved it. And then, you know, Hogan coming out at the end, you know, running down there, making his way into the ring, you know, confronting Flair. Flair getting on his knees and begging off in the traditional Ric Flair chicken shit heel way. I just thought, and, and again, you know, forget about the stars, forget about what Eric Bischoff thinks or Conrad Thompson thinks. Go back, watch it for yourself, and watch the crowd reaction to the action 
and you tell me if you thought this was a good match or not, or a good finish or not. I'm, I'm really, I'm not, not challenging people to do it because I think I'm right and whatever. I'm just really curious what fans today think of a finish like that. To be clear, Sting's going for the backslide for a near fall. Sherry gets on the apron, so Sting is distracted. Flair schoolboys him, holds the tights. There's your pin. As Flair's awarded both belts, Sherry gets in. They look at each other as if they're not sure. And then he drops the belts. They embrace. Uh, Sting goes to deck Flair, but is punched from behind by Sherry. And then, of course, they get the figure four on him. And she splashes him off the top rope wearing this prom dress several times. Uh, eventually, he uh, Sting gets kicked low with the high heels. Hulk Hogan comes in to save the day. He's cheered big here. Um, when he and Flair lock up, Flair starts begging off and there you go. We're, uh, we're on our way. We've got three and a half stars. I thought the main event was pretty cool. I enjoyed seeing it for the first time in a long time. I guess I just enjoy Flair and Sting. I think their, uh, chemistry is really good. Uh, they, they had all their usual staples, the big press slam that Flair loved to take, uh, from Sting. And then the clothesline right after just. Flair knew how to make Sting look like a million bucks, and he did here. Uh, what's your memories of, of bringing Sherry in? Why was she uh, the right person for Flair? And I guess we should take just a minute to talk about Sherry because we just passed upon, I think it was like the 12-year anniversary of her passing just last week. Uh, any memories of, uh, of Sherry you'd like to share? You know, I mean, my memories of her, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal talent. I mean, man, woman, however you want to, whatever category you want to compare her to. I don't think there was any, she could do anything any, any male performer could do. She had the advantages of being able to, to, to be, you know, a sultry, sexy, dangerous character. She could bump with anybody. She was so talented. So, so talented. She cut a great promo. You know, I remember she was in AWA for a very short period of time while I was there. That's when I was first exposed to her. Um, <clears throat> Ric Flair was the one that really wanted to bring her in. He Because he knew her so much better than I did. I, would, I had seen her in AWA, but, you know, I was so green. You know, I thought everybody was great. You know, I thought the janitor was great. You know, I just, I was just walking around with big eyes and uh, I thought everything was exciting, but I did, I'm going a long way around the block to say, I didn't appreciate Sherry as much as I wished I would have during this period of time. I didn't recognize her for being the, the amazing talent she was until she was gone. And I hate saying that. I really, really hate to admit that to myself but it's true. And I feel badly about it, you know, especially after watching her here. And, you know, I, I just seeing her performance in this main event made me go, God, you know, I really missed the boat on this and I'm not sure I could have done anything differently. I'm sure I could have. And I, and I like to think I might have, but she, she really was phenomenal. And I, I ran into Sherry. Oh, must've been about a year or so right before she passed and we sat down, she had one of her kids with her. I think it was her son. And I don't know why we were in the same hotel. There must've been some kind of an event going on. 
and she was there with her son and we sat down and caught up and I was never close to her. You know, I never had, a, you know, anything other than a very professional relationship with her, almost a distant professional relationship with her. I, you know, I wasn't her agent. I didn't write for her. I didn't direct her. You know, I didn't lay out any of her matches. It just wasn't my role in WCW when she was there. But um, we sat down and had a beer and, and caught up and talked about old times. And it, it was a very, it was a very sweet, sweet meeting. You know, it was the last time I, I was going to talk to her, but she was, she was an amazing talent. I think another one of those talents, like I was talking about with Aaron, who was so underappreciated and, and underrated. She could perform today as well as anybody in the business, in my opinion, you know, at her peak, she's, she, she was great. Well, I think on that note, we should just go ahead and wrap it up. I want to tell everybody what we're doing next week. We're going to be coming at you with bash at the beach, 1998. Of course it's diamond Dallas page and Carl Malone teaming up with Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman up to that point. One of the biggest pay-per-views in WCW history, certainly the most mainstream appeal. Uh, but I can't think of a better way to wrap up this week's show with uh, a few kind words about Sherry Martell. So we'll leave this episode here. We hope you enjoyed clash of the champions 27. Go back, uh, take a look at it. Give us your opinion. And I'm curious to think or get your take on which belt you preferred the big gold belt or the, the new belt that replaced the big gold belt. Ultimately WCW made the call to, when they unified the titles, go back to the original, the big gold belt. Did they make the right call? Weigh in on Twitter at 83 weeks. We want your questions for bash at the beach. 98. He is at E Bischoff on Twitter. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we will see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.